part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Uh, it's rare that I would take just one verse, but uh, this morning we're going to use a lot of verses, but we're really going to kind of sink in in Galatians 2.20. In fact, uh, I would like to challenge you that, you know, as far as for the year, that this would be a verse that we would just, as a church, as a body of believers, say, okay, this is what we want to live out. This is really our vision, not just the pastor's vision, not just something that God laid on his heart, but something that we would take up and that we would embrace. And Galatians 2.20, there's a lot of verses that really would uh, help live out this theme of, of how do we become Christ-centered. But Galatians 2.20 in one verse really kind of captures all of that. But before we get started in looking at that word, I uh, need to kind of give you a little bit of an illustration of, of, of what we're going to be talking about in the next couple weeks, especially as we approach that marriage series. And so I need somebody to kind of take one for the team this morning and uh, for all the spouses that are out there. How long do you estimate that it took you to go from a me orientation to a we orientation? Instead of me, myself, and I, you know, you're a single guy, you're a single gal, you're out there and, you know, you're single and so you're thinking pretty much about me. And then all of a sudden, you know, you put the ring on the finger, you have this ceremony, you have, you know, all those different things. And instantly, uh, there's a we, a us, and a ours. And all of a sudden, you know, your life totally is really radically changed from this me orientation to a we orientation. Anybody want to take one for the team and say, uh, like, for example, Brian, would you take one for the team this morning? And, uh, you know, how, how long you have been married? Yes, yes. Okay. And, and so... So it took a long time, okay, to, to start kind of getting that mentality. In other words, just because the ring went on the finger and there were some uh, vows that you gave and exchanged and the beauty of a, a wedding didn't mean that instantly when you walked out, even though you were husband and wife, there was an instant change in mind and mentality, even though I, I would imagine that there was a desire for that. Okay. Katie, how long have y'all been married? Good. I'm glad I asked you instead of him. You know, just you know, he had that, in, that that wondering look. And so, was it instantaneous? I mean, you, you said your vows. You had this beautiful wedding and all these things. And so, you walk back out of that place, your husband and wife. And so, instantly, you went from me to we. Now, still in the transition of that. Yeah. Okay. Who has been married more than 25 years? Okay. More than let, let's go up 40 years. More than 40 years. Okay. Okay, I'm gonna come back there to the to the clouds then. Okay, how long how how long yeah how long have y'all been married? How many? Forty eight. Praise God. Okay, in that okay you, you had this wedding, you beautiful time. You walk out husband and wife. Are you still honestly still struggling with changing from me to we, even forty eight years later? Yeah. I mean, wouldn't we all agree to that? I mean, that's the finest couple that I know, okay? I don't know that there's going to be a finer couple here for an example today. And yet, isn't that the Christian life? That we sing those songs and, you know, we say, okay, yes, I want to die to self. I want to live for Christ. I mean, that really is. I would think anybody who's sincere about Christianity would say this is what we want to do. And yet, do you still really find yourself struggling with this whole death to self and the self-centeredness and truly becoming Christ-centered? 
Well, that's what really the theme of 2016 is. You know, how do we do that? And, and I don't really don't know that at the end of 2016 that we're going to master it, but I do hope that we really will have not only some theological grounding for that, some scriptural grounding for that, but also a lot of application. What does it really mean to have a Christ-centered family? What does it mean to do Christ-centered parenting? What does it mean to have a Christ-centered marriage? What does it mean to be Christ-centered as we go out and live our life vocationally? Because those are the things that we really need. Now, that whole word, I will warn you, Christ-centered, it, it is the hot word of the day. You go into to Lifeway, a Christian bookstore or something, you're going to find so many different things that, quote-unquote, Christ-centered. I mean, there's the Christ-centered woman, there's the Christ-centered family, uh, the Christ-centered wedding. You know, we may want to look that one up now that we have a wedding to plan. The Christ-centered life, building a Christ-centered, you're going to find that terminology all over the place. But what does it really mean? In actual practice, what does it mean? Because words are cheap. Will you agree that it's, it's easy? I mean, even this morning to come in and sing those songs, you could not have picked out three more perfect songs. To say, okay, look, I want this for my life. I want to lay down my life. And I want to adore you. You're worthy of my praise. You're not just worthy of my Sunday morning. You are worthy of my life. Would you agree that God is worthy of your life and not just your Sunday morning? So how do we live that way? Well, this morning we're going to begin to, to start looking at that and begin to, to really see how, even though that sounds like it's a very individual thing, and it is. I, I cannot be Christ-centered for you. You cannot be Christ-centered for me. But I promise you, as I read the Bible, this Christ-centered life that we are to live individually was always helped when it was lived corporately. That is, when we had the body of believers around us. Because I don't know about you, but there's times that I really am not very Christ-centered, I'm very self-centered, and God uses my wife as that part of inspiration. There's other times that men in accountability in my lives or somebody will say something. And, and guys, it's not there. The tank is empty. And yet a brother will come up, somebody will come up from the body of believers and say, what about this, Bobby? What about this? And it'll be that very thing that kind of spurs you on. And so, okay, yes, I want that. I just have an empty tank, but I want to live this out. Well, this year we're, we're going to really put a lot of focus on that and uh, begin to look at that. Open your Bibles again to Galatians 2.20. I would challenge every member, every person who attends Cornerstone, uh, just to kind of make this your, your 2016 verse. And uh, among other things that God may be doing in your life, you may have already picked out a devotional guide, kind of a reading plan for 2016, other things that you have individually. But, but I would like to add this, not to add an extra weight to what you've already assembled, but I think this one verse really just captures the heart of the goal of, of what it means to, to live for Christ. Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I love this verse. Not that the other verses in the Bible don't point us to this Christ-centeredness. But in one verse, this one really kind of captures a lot of what the Apostle Paul was trying to get the Galatian church to see. What he's trying to get us to see is this life that truly is okay. I have died. I mean, most things, that their bargaining chip to get you involved is, hey, come and live the life. You know, be a part of this. Go sell this Amway product or whatever it is and be part of Amway or this whole system and this, you know, and you'll live the life. You'll be going on cruises. You'll be taking vacations. You'll, you know, 
half of the commercials that are on TV from 12 o'clock at night to 5 o'clock in the morning, you know, that's what they're promising. Go do this. I mean, there's almost a billion reasons why some people played the lottery the last couple of weeks. Okay, man, you know, this is the life. You know, you, I, I mean, and I can't argue, you know, I've always said that money can't buy you happiness, but it can rent it for a very long time, you know. Uh, but even then, there's an end to it. Even then, even with a billion dollars, there's an end to that. And Christ says, okay, the, the way I want you to see this is there needs to be an end to yourself. Because there's going to be very few invitations that you ever get in life that said, come and die. <laughs> you really want to live life? Then come and die. And yet that's the invitation of Christ. Die to yourself so that you can truly live in me. And that's what Paul begins to capture here. There was a phrase that Paul introduced to the New Testament church and New Testament writing that we don't see whatsoever in the Old Testament. It's the term in Christ. And it was his favorite term. And uh, he used it uh, about 160 times in some form or fashion. He uses it, I think, 84 times, depending on the translation. Directly, you'll just see the words in Christ. And to the Apostle Paul, that terminology captured the Christian life. That if you said that you were a Christian, that this captured it. In fact, you know that the word Christian, you know, the word that we often use to describe ourselves, is really, depending on translation again, is really only used twice in the New Testament. And yet 164 times in some variation, this is the terminology. So biblically speaking, now again, I don't want anybody to be offended. Okay, He doesn't even like the word Christian. I, I love the word Christian, okay? But biblically speaking, if we want to be biblically accurate, the Bible uses it twice to describe a believer who has committed himself to Christ. But he uses this terminology of those who are in Christ repeatedly. And so Paul begins to, to show us that this is kind of uh, our, you know, our name. This is the description, the life that we are to live. And it's with great purpose that he begins to describe what this life in Christ looks like. So I want us to take that terminology, in Christ, and this other term, Christ-centeredness, and I want you to understand that they really are the same thing. To be in Christ is really the start of the walk of being Christ-centered. You cannot be Christ-centered and not be in Christ. You can be religious. They can get you wet in a pool. You can be on a church roll. There's a whole bunch of you can, things you can do and not be in Christ. But you cannot be Christ-centered unless you are in Christ. That's, he's the only one that can give you that life. And so as we start this morning, as we begin to explore, you know, a Christ-centered marriage. I understand that I am talking about a husband and a wife at that point that would be Christians. And I realize that not everybody has that blessing. I realize that not everybody is there. And I realize also that within the marriage that there's often one that may be a little bit more mature in Christ than the other one. But when we begin to talk about these things, we're not excluding the rest of the world, but we do want to focus on what is this life that he has called us to. See, that term Christian can be very generic. When I was in Israel, Christian was anybody who was non-Jew and non-Muslim. You know, you were one of three things. You know, so they kind of summed you up real quick when you came in. Are you Jew? Are you Muslim? Are you Christian? And to them, it was a very generic term because they just meant that you weren't Jewish and you weren't Muslim. Well, folks, in Christ doesn't have 
that kind of generic sense. It comes only through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's all dependent not on your ability to follow him, but on his ability to save you. And here's the great thing. Did you know that none of us, not single one of us, are beyond the saving power of Jesus Christ? There is not one that Christ went to the cross for that he looks upon our life, the sin of our life, and the rebellion of our life, and say, you know, man, that Ricky, no way. There's no way I cannot, I could not spill enough blood. No, even that one drop of blood is enough to wash away your sins, my sins, everybody's sins. And so this life in Christ, as we begin to see it, is really the life that is best described, even better than Christian, a follower of Christ, of what actually happened. That we are in Christ, that is his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. When Paul used that term, and he would describe, you're in Christ, you've put your trust, you were putting your trust that his life, that he really was the son of the living God. That he really did die a fiscal death. And that he died for the purpose of the redemption of sins. And that he really did go to a grave, but three days later that he rose again. It's that that Paul meant when he said, okay, if you're in Christ. And we would use this description because he was talking about the work of Christ. See, to some people, you say Christian, and what comes to their mind is actually the morality that is often associated with Christianity. You know, do this, don't do that, the the Ten Commandments, those kind of things. And certainly, a a part of Christianity is that God has called us into a a, a very uh, um, loving, you know, uh, obedient life, and it is moral. But, But if you just kept the morality of the Ten Commandments and never had a relationship with Jesus Christ, I, I promise you guys, you're not going to be in heaven. That's not me being some you know, mean person. It just only life in Christ and surrender to him and death to self really comes to that place of, of being able to have eternity with him. So there's a lot riding on this. It's not just three days to a better marriage, five days to better finances, you know, six days to, to a better family life. I wish it was that simple. I wish when I sat down with folks that are struggling in family matters that it was simple as saying, if you do this, this, and this, everything that is broken will be fixed. There's nothing more sad than sitting by grieving parents, hurting parents, over the rebellion of a son or a daughter. There is nothing more heartbreaking than sitting across from a, a, a male or a female who desires to stay in the marriage and, and the other one does not want to be a part of that marriage. And guys, you can say verse after verse, you can quote all these things, and it's not that there's not power in God's word, but you can't make rebellious people all of a sudden obedient. It comes through Christ. And so this isn't just kind of a tag that we put in there, okay, I want to be found in Christ. No, it is essential to the Christ life. You cannot live the Christ life and not be in Christ. But here's the good news of the gospel. Any of us can be in Christ. It's not how good you are. It's not how much you measure up. It's the free gift of God's grace. He died so that we might be able to have this life. And so what does this mean to be in Christ? 
We're going to kind of look at three different things, and then we will expand that out in the next couple months. You'll see a lot of this uh, is kind of the foundation for the marriage series. Because in the marriage series, we will talk about, you know, man, if you, guys, you do this, it's probably going to be, make your, you know, your wife happier, and that's going to make your life happier. So we will look at the very practical things like that, but, it, but if you don't get this part of it, the, kind of the grounding of the scriptural part, all it will be is task for, to do. And guess where it rides? Right there on your shoulders. Are you man enough to be this good husband? See, God's call upon your life wasn't for you to be a better husband. God's call upon your life was to be a husband in Christ. Because only in Christ can you love your wife as Christ loved the church. See how it all fits together? So let's look at three changes that happen when we are in Christ. That is, when, when we truly trust Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that he was the Son of God, that he died for our sins, and that he lives again, and that we have that place our hope for a right relationship with God on that. Three changes that take place. The first one is a positional change. The Bible's pretty, let's say black and white, pretty stark when it talks about who we were before Christ. It basically says you were God's enemy. Now, I don't know that they taught you that back in Sunday school. And I don't know that really this morning, back with our two-year-olds and five-year-olds and seven-year-olds, if you're not in Christ, you're the enemy of God. You know, it really doesn't play out well in preschool and, and in children's class. But the Bible, because it wants to tell us truth, it doesn't want to offend. It's not trying to hurt our feelings. It's trying to tell us the truth because it actually has good news to offer. So it tells us the bad news first. The bad news is because of our sin, we are the enemy of God. We're in this not just kind of a, a bad relationship. We're in a confrontational relationship. Ephesians 2.13, look what it says. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What Paul is saying is, okay, look, none of us were just a couple inches from the cross and from right relationship with God. I mean, I used to always think, man, if I could just be like Billy Graham. Did you ever have, you know, have that thought? Or maybe there's this great Christian hearing. You say, if I can just be like that person, because I imagine they're just about an inch or two away from God. Biblically speaking, guys, theologically speaking, none of us take the whole myriad of all of our lives right here. None of you were an inch closer to the cross than me. None of you were an inch farther away from me. Sin-wise, rebellious-wise, some of those things as, as what we actually did in our lives, oh, we would say, man, I had 30 years of rebellion. And somebody else might say, well, I only had three years of rebellion. But, but theologically, all of us were far off. None of us were close to God. None of us deserved His grace. So the first thing that Paul tells us there is, is that all of us were far, far off. Why? Because the Bible makes it very clear in Romans 2 that all have sinned and fall short of the God, of God. None of us were left to our own to work this out. None of us were left on our own to hope it out. And none of us were left to, to pray it out even. Maybe if I just fast and pray, I will become closer to God. No, the only way to God is through Jesus Christ. It's not through these works. By grace we are saved. And only that, so that we can't boast. So the good news is, you know, the bad news is that we were the enemies of God. Without Christ, you're the enemy of God. 
The good news is every one of us can be actually part of the family of God. Not by us improving ourselves, not by us getting better, but by trusting in the work of Jesus Christ. Because look what it says in in Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. I want you to digest that a little bit. Nowhere in there does Paul write and say, man, you are the enemy of God, but you know, you cleaned up your act. You started going to church. Man, you even helped out in one of those events. He didn't say anything that was on the basis. He said you were reconciled through what? Through one thing, through the work of Jesus Christ. And the good news about that is that now we all have hope, not just for the top performers. I mean, at school, you know, there was always, you know, the people. How many of y'all had all the chords? Go ahead, raise your hand if you had a lot of the chords, at least one or two chords. Raise your hand. Okay, Allison, that wasn't very, you know, yes. I hated you. No, I'm just going to, you know, I got it's like, man, look at all those chords. She's so smart. She's so accomplished. I bet she never had any fun. You know, at least I had fun. You know, there's a way that the world recognizes the top achievers. Many of you are educators. There's the star teacher. You know, you, you want that. You'd love to put that on your resume. If you're a salesman, there's top salesmen. Be able to go ahead and lead the company in sales. No matter what it is, there's, there's achievement out here. But when it comes to this in Christ, it's not an achievement thing. God takes ourselves totally out of it and says, all the emphasis, every bit of it, 100% of it, is on my son, Jesus Christ. He led a perfect life that you never could leave and live, and now you can put your faith and trust in him. That's, that's the great news that we have here. That's what Paul is saying. Now, what does this have to do, this positional change, have to do with leading a Christ-centered life? Let me put these two thoughts together. First, the answer. Everything. Again, you cannot live the Christ-centered life outside of Christ. You can live a religious life. You can even live a moral life, a good life. You know, being a good person. You, you can be. I've met some people who are not Christians. They have not put their faith and trust in Christ. That would embarrass us by their goodness. I mean, they are good as gold. Unfortunately, they're good as gold, but they still have sin. And so they're still apart from God. And until they put their trust in Christ, they will stay in that position. So the first thing that we see about this in Christ, this being Christ-centered, is that it's a positional change that God has brought about to our life. Galatians 2.20, look what it says. I've been crucified with Christ... It is no longer I who live, but what? But Christ that lives in me. This isn't the, you know, uh, uh, a new life that I have based on my goodness. Now, actually, the, the very Son of God lives inside of me. Colossians 3.3 3 says, For ye have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Anybody remember, if you grew up in church, you, you might remember this story. Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. They sin against God. 
You know, they rebel and go their own way. And what did they do when God came back into the garden? You know, he kind of would come through the garden in the cool of the evening, the Bible would say. And, and do you remember what Adam and Eve did when God came back through the garden that evening? They hid. Because isn't that the natural reaction when you know that you have sinned against so, I mean, how many of you, when you're little kids, and you took the extra cookie, you did this, you broke the lamp, whatever it is, you put the baseball right through the garage door, you know, all those things. How many of you just instantly went up and said, I want to confess, it was me? No, we hid. No, it was Johnny. No wonder you told me never to play with Johnny. He's a bad influence, Mom, and he broke the window. You know, I, I should have listened to you. No, we are ready to point blame just as Adam did. Remember what Adam said when God confronted him and he said? He said, God, in other words, this is partly your fault, the woman you gave me. It's the woman's fault. If he would have had a third arm, he would have pointed over there to the serpent that was, you know, maybe still by the tree. It was everybody's fault but Adam's. And so what we see here is God saying, look, you know, when you come and you confess, now your life, you don't have to hide from God anymore. Your life in Christ, now you're actually hidden in Christ. What does that cause you to do? Get lazy? Just do whatever you want? No. It causes you to rest and it causes you to worship. That first song that we sang this morning about adoring God, adoration. You know why I can adore God? Because I can rest in him. Because if I was going to see God today, if today was my day to stand before God at the end of my life, I can rest in what Christ Jesus has done and not fear that I didn't have enough accomplishments on my own. So first, it's a positional change. That's the first thing that we begin to see. The second thing that we begin to see is a transformational change. This call into the Christ's life is a changing of the way that we act, the way that we think, the way that we feel, really how we relate to everything else in the world. So it's not just all of a sudden, okay, we get this ticket to heaven, and when we die 30, 40, 50, 60 years out from now, we cash in the ticket and say, God, when I was 19, walked down that aisle, I prayed, got my ticket, got wet. In fact, it may still be a little bit damp there, but, you know, this is my ticket to heaven. No. That's not how it works. He says, not only when you come to Christ, there's a positional change. You're not an enemy. You're part of the family now. But there's also this transformational change. In the same way, let's go back to Brian, so we picked on him. There's been a transformational change in all these years of marriage. Not just when you got to the end of the aisle and you were waving bouquets and y'all were, you know, just the happy couple. No, there was still a lot of me in both of you, I would, I would imagine, if you're like most people. And even to this day, there's probably still a little bit of me. But more and more and more, as we walk that married life, we begin to say, you know, it's not about me anymore. There's a we involved. And so all of a sudden, you're, you know, and then you have kids. Oh, my goodness, then it's a us. It's not just a me and a we. Now it's an us. It's like, have you seen that? I think it's a State Farm commercial. Because I am never going to have kids, you know. And then he has the kid. And he says, you know, I am never going to get a minivan. 
And then all of a sudden he's got the minivan. I am never going to leave the city. And then he's in the suburbs. We are never going to have another child. And she walks by and says, I'm pregnant. You know, and I, love, and I love the last part of that. You know, the redeeming part is, I will never change this. Or whatever his wording is. is you know, in other words, he understands that all these changes from me to this we, he kind of resisted. Because every part of that we, I mean, a minivan, there's not too many 18, 19-year-old guys who go, you know, when I grow up, I just want a minivan. A hot one. I don't know that there is a hot minivan. I I think that those just don't go together. And and so, you know, you're not ascribing to that. But, man, you hit 28 or 33, you got a couple kids, you're going, we are going to go get a minivan. If you're going to take that much junk, every time we go somewhere, we are going to get a minivan. If you're going to move the whole house every time we go. And so all of a sudden this me attitude goes into a we attitude, an us attitude. Folks, that's the Christian life. And I don't think that it's going to, that, that final strike is not going to be there until we actually stand before the Lord one day and he completes us. Until then, we are going to contend with me, but there should be a transformation going on. There should be a transformation. You should look more like Christ today than you did last year. If you've been a Christian for 10 years, you should look more like Christ today than you did 10 years ago. This is what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Christianity isn't a new and improved version of the old you. I, I grew up in my early church years in the late 60s, early 70s. And this was Christianity. This was what was preached to me. Cut your hair, lengthen your skirt, burn the Beatles records, and you will be just like us. I mean, it was all this outward conformity. That's not the Christian. You find that in the Bible. Find that in the Bible, that through outward conformity that you can come. At the same time, is there supposed to be a transformation? Yeah, but it may not be the length of your hair. It may not be the length of your skirt. It may not be the Beatles records. I actually like the Beatles. But there is a change in the way your heart operates. It changes in the way that you're going to deal with others. Why? Let's go back to Galatians 2.20, kind of our, our main verse. Because I've been crucified with Christ. Do you know what it means to be crucified? It means you die. Crucifixion was not a form of um, suggestion for the person involved. They didn't crucify people as just a matter of you know, slapping on the wrist. Crucifixion ended up with one direct element. You died. It may have caused other people to stand up and notice, but for the person crucified, you died. And so when Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ, he's not saying, hey, my old life is still pretty much there, or my old attitudes, or my old, you know, the way that I thought, and I've just kind of adjusted those and tried to make them a little bit better, try to, you know, shine them up and dust them off a little bit. No, he said, that old me had to die, and before the new me in Christ to come about. So there is this spiritual change of position of where we stand with God. There's this transformational change that comes about that we begin to to think differently. And then there's a relational change. 
There should not be one relationship in your life post-Christ that stays the same, that you approach on the same level. Not just husband and wife. That one's pretty obvious. That as a Christian man, as a Christian woman, that you approach your marriage in a totally different way. As a Christian mom or dad, that that makes sense. That you would approach the way that you're going to parent your kids differently because now you're in Christ. And so you're just going to have a different approach for life. But every relationship that you have, every working relationship, every broken relationship. Now again, there's nothing more heartbreaking than when you can't fix a broken relationship, not because you don't have desire, but because they just don't want restoration of that uh, relationship. But listen to what Paul writes about the kind of mindset that we should take into relationships, not just marriage and not just family, but into all relationships post-Christ. If we want to have a Christ in our life, if we're in Christ, here's what he says. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. Put all men as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Now look at verse 13. This is the kicker bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And so, okay, husbands, here's what you do. Wives, here's what you do. Husband colors outside the lines, you, you forgive him as Christ. Now he said, in every relationship, now that we're marked by Christ, now that we're in Christ, We've had death to self and resurrection now through Jesus Christ. He said, you take this kind of attitude, and this is just one sampling, into every relationship that you have. Galatians 3, 27, 28. It also changes our relationship, not just with other people, but with other Christians. Look at this, and then we'll close, close this morning. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ... There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are what? You're all one in Christ Jesus. No, we may not really get the fullness of that. But guys, I think I preached many months ago. Remember the Bible, all these ites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, Ninevites, all these people came from all these different areas and, and you know, they had these different ite names describing who they were and the culture that they came from. And, and so we get to the New Testament and even though we don't have the Amorites, the Ninevites, you know, all these different, we still have all these people that, from a very different culture setting and we have different classes of people. You know, there were a lot of cultures that there was the royal class, there was the working class, there was the, the, the peasant class, there was the, the slave class. You know, they, they had all these different things. And now they are trying, they're trusting Christ as their Savior. They're all meeting at Cornerstone Church. Royalty and slave. Male and female. Guy working 40 hours a week, busting his tail, along with the boss who's sitting there cracking the whip. They're all, all these ites, all these different backgrounds. One church. And what does God say there? What is Paul saying? He said, now because you're in Christ, he said, you're all family. 
So it changes every relationship we have. Outside of Christ, it changes every relationship with a new mentality and a new attitude of forgiveness and, and grace. But even within the body of Christ, all of us with all these different backgrounds, we come and the Bible says, be encouraged in this. You come from all these different backgrounds. You're so different in so many different ways. But when you're in me, you're brother and sister. You're one body. You're one family. This year, that's what we're going to explore. When we talk about marriages, we're not talking about just how to be a better husband, to be a better wife. Well, we'll cover some of that. I promise you it will be very practical. But if we don't get this part of it, that change doesn't come because we just kind of hone our skills a little bit. I don't know about you, but I have my good days, my bad days when it comes to hone skills. There's days I really feel like being a better husband, and there's other times I am so full of myself. Forget this new life in Christ. Forget the we. It's all about me. Anybody else have at least a minute or two of the day that is like that? Because you're looking at me strange, kind of like, well, Bobby, we're going to pray for you, okay? And mostly we're going to pray for Carly, okay? Because if she has to live with you, you devil. You know, no, this is the struggle. This is the Christian life, guys. Going from this beautiful wedding the day that he saved us. He says, I call you my own, your family. To the day that we will hear, maybe hopefully, good, well done, my good and faithful servant. But this in-between time, between this, this wedding day of sorts that started our Christian life when we trusted Christ as our Lord and Savior, and that ultimate day when he brings us into glory for all eternity, until that time, you and I are making a transition from me to we. The we being the others that God has put in your life, but most of all, Christ. Next week, we're going to talk about Family focus. What does it really mean? Does it mean just we have a lot of different families and we do a lot of different things with families? We're going to see what biblical foundation does this Christ-centeredness bring out to really say, okay, we want to be family focused. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you. And Father, I pray this morning that you uh, lead us in this time. Father, will you help us get what this means? I've been crucified in Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Father, I I don't know that until we stand before you that we're going to be able to grasp that in fullness. But Father, will you at least give us a handle on that this morning? Father, will you encourage uh, us in that? Father, I pray for those that may not have trusted you as Lord and Savior of their life this morning. I pray that they will hear that there is no uh, hope in in them becoming good enough to to become a Christian. Father, it's by your grace, by the the finished work of Christ. And so, Father, I pray that this morning you would just draw them to you as you did to me when I was 12 years old. Father, for those that are Christians this morning, those that are in Christ, as Paul would say, Father, I, I pray that you would allow us to, to, to hunger for you. And, and, Father, that we would rest in the finished relationship that we have. At the same time, Father, that daily you'd be transforming the way that I am a husband, the way that I'm a father, the way that I'm a pastor, the way that I'm a neighbor. So, Father, work in our lives. Father, this is going to be a banner year 
for Cornerstone Church, Father. Not because of numbers of people, not because of, of, of things that we're, we're trying to do, but, Father, because you want to bless your bride at Cornerstone. Father, you want to bless this church. And, Father, you want to use us in this community because there are so many people out there, Father. They, all they have hope in is the me. Father, you, you've commissioned us to let them see the beauty of a we life them in Christ, us in Christ. Will you start that even this morning, Father? For that one who's been carrying the load of of trying to perform for you, will you release them in Christ this morning and, and let them know it is finished, it is done, and they can rest in you. For the Father who's trying just to, to find the wisdom to, to to somehow move his family and, 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 and guide them. Father, will you, will you show them that this morning they can trust in you? For the wife who's trying to do it all, mom, worker, Father, will you let them just have rest in you this morning? This is your time, Father. We trust you. Lead us as we pray all this in Christ's name. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.